all you have. We would be honored if you would join us. Well, one more day until my doctor's appointment, and to my surprise, I'm feeling a lot better. Ain't that something? I've been sick for months, but as soon as I am going to the doctor, I start feeling better. It seems like that always happens. Ain't much I can do about it. I just have to go with the flow. I guess my sickness kind of relates to Chapter 9, though. Atlanta and Trio arrive on Knox. It seems like anyone that lives there might have the same issues. All the pollution and how messed up it is. They all wouldn't be able to talk. They'd be all messed up. But I'm not going to try to explain this planet. I will let the book do that. So let's get to it. The Jedi say, There is no ignorance. There is knowledge. But they are ignorant of your lies, your struggles, and their superiority blinds them. They say, There is no fear. There is power. Yet in their power, they are smug. And I will make them fear me. Despot Queen Hadia. 10,658 TYA, so your arrival. Even from a distance, Knox looked like hell. Lannery plotted a route that brought them into the planet's atmosphere well on the opposite hemisphere from Greenwood Station, swinging them in an arc around the planet and approaching from the night side. The seas were a heavy, sullen gray, the landmasses mostly covered by sickly-looking yellowish clouds that glowed and pulsed with interior storms. The small patches of land she could see between the clouds were of a uniform bronze color. There was no green. She wondered what Greenwood Station had been like when it had been named, or whether the name was bitterly ironic. Tree sat in the co-pilot's seat again. He hadn't said much for quite a while, and Lannery was starting to fear that he was succumbing to space sickness. If that happened, he'd be no use at all, and she'd have to leave him in the Peacemaker. And she would not leave him here with her ship, alone and awake. She knew exactly where to hit him. Pretty, he said as they started skimming the atmosphere. Not very. It's going to get bumpy. She'd taken them in a steeper descent than was normal, eager to enter the atmosphere as quickly as possible. The longer their approach, the more likely they'd be noticed. She could see at least seven other craft on the scanners, all describing different descents to various parts of the planet, and she'd heard no hailing on the comm. But that didn't mean they weren't all being tracked. And maybe those other seven were expected. Heat built around the peacemaker's nose, shimmering their view and then hazing it out completely. The window's shields closed automatically, and Lannery kept her eyes on the scanners to maintain manual control. Really, she said. It'll be bumpy. Trying to get rid of me? Tree asked. Don't worry. I think I'll stay here, strapped in. Even after six days, she still didn't like him sitting in the cockpit beside her, because she couldn't talk to herself anymore. The peacemaker started to vibrate as it carved its way down into the planet's toxic atmosphere. Lannery swung the ship to the left and down, increasing the speed and angle of descent, and every now and then she glanced sidelong at Tree to see how he was taking this. Spaceflight was simple compared to the traumas of entering an atmosphere. And despite all he'd said, he seemed calm and confident with what was happening. Almost there, she said. Good. He exhaled deeply as if suddenly aware that she was watching. Don't like this at all. They dropped, and soon Lannery leveled them out, flying above Knox and feeling the ship's responses at being back in an atmosphere again through her hands. The peacemaker was rattled but unbroken. It cruised. Lannery skimmed them along the coast of one of the largest continents, flying low enough to avoid basic radar-based scanners, but not too low to be dangerous. And a while later, she edged them inland toward their destination. There was no saying whether Dale and the Stargazers were here yet. 
just as when they'd entered Nox's atmosphere, Lannery knew that they were flying blind. The destruction was worse than she could have imagined. Lannery remembered some of the Despot War. She'd been only 13 at the time, but she would never forget watching her parents leaving home, false smiles hiding the fear that they might leave their children as orphans. She had watched the hollows and heard the reports, but her real knowledge of the war came from what she'd read and seen of it down through the intervening years. At the time it was happening, war was always confused. The truth emerged afterward. She'd learned about the despot Queen Hadia uniting Shikakwa's crime barons under her charismatic rule, and then attempting to exert her influence across the rest of the settled worlds. There had been a surprisingly enthusiastic rallying to her cause, as she promised safety and wealth and a freedom from Jedi interference. Denying the Force, demonizing it to all who followed and listened, her aggression had been brutal but short-lived. The Jedi swore to confront any moves made against them, and also to protect all those who did not wish to be subjugated beneath Hadia's rule. After a period of phony war, during which there were many small skirmishes in space and on some of Calamar's moons, Hadia had taken the war to Tython. Working in secret, she had built a formidable army, well-equipped and heavily armed, and had taken the Jedi somewhat by surprise. The invasion was massive, brutal, and the battles fierce. But the Jedi had the force on their side, and everything Hadia hated had worked against her. The defining moment of the war had been catastrophic. Following Hadia's death at Kaleth and the defeat of her armies, it had taken a long time to count the true cost of the conflict. A hundred thousand Tythons dead, ten times that many of Hadia's forces, and many more seriously injured. Wounds ran deep, and remained so even now, more than a decade later. Before Lannery now was one such wound. She knew about the manufacturing domes on Nox that had been bombed by the Jedi, attacked for providing arms and weapons for Hadia's armies, and she had seen hollows of the act itself. But hollows were at a distance. Imagination was limited by experience. Nothing could prepare her for seeing the truth with her own eyes. It was startling to see how effective a Jedi military strike could be, and though Lannery had seen plenty of combat, she had never been involved in a full-scale war. She didn't even know the name of the first ruin they passed. Her peacemaker flitted quickly by, but the scale of the devastation was still staggering. The city must have been eight kilometers in width, and now very little of its original protective dome remained. The ruins inside were a charred, melted mess, holding lakes of rancid water and pointing accusatory slivers of wrecked buildings at the sky. It was a relief to pass the destruction and fly across undisturbed ground, even if that landscape was so obviously polluted and poisonous. Very little grew here, and if any creatures were able to live and breathe in the rank air, they did not make themselves known. They passed another dome on their starboard side, several kilometers distant, yet still plainly visible as a scar on the landscape. Every scar tells a story, Lannery thought, and this tale must have been terrible. A portion of the dome remained, shattered and starred by multiple projectile impacts, and detritus from the city was scattered across the surrounding plains. The explosions that had finished this dome must have been immense. She felt sickness welling inside, and a sense of hopelessness enveloped her. The Force offered so much, yet still there was the need for conflict, pain, and death. A thousand people might be peace-loving and committed to living their lives well, but it took only one to plant a seed of poison that would spread through the population. How many of the Despot Army's million dead would still be alive today were it not for Hadia? Perhaps most of them. Some might harbor dislike of the Jedi or some vaguely unsettled sense of mistrust, hatred even. But without someone with Hadia's charisma and determination, such feelings remained inside, unfocused. 
she had made them manifest, and on her hands was the blood of a million victims on both sides. Seeing it really brings it home, Tree said. He sounded so distressed, so genuine, so not like Tresana. Lannery could almost like it. She turned the peacemaker and tracked Greenwood Station on her scanner. It was a riot of movement, ships lifting and landing, and large ground transports moving around the massive dome. But she was more concerned with traces of ships closer to her. If Greenwood Station had anything like an organized military, or a defense force funded by the great manufacturing conglomerates, they would detect the peacemaker soon. And her arrival had to remain covert. That was essential, because if Dale and his stargazers knew where and when she had arrived, their reaction would be instant. This was a much wilder place than Calamar, and they had hardly been careful there. Twenty-six kilometers out from Greenwood Station, two small sentry ships rose from the landscape a kilometer ahead and accelerated toward the dome. Lannery reacted instantly, flicking a switch to block their communication systems. She heard a few panicked words. Greenwood 4! Greenwood 4! You reading this? Jedi! Incoming! Peacemaker class! Must be the one we've been waiting for! We'll leave it in, but I'm not engaging that! No way! We'll leave it in. Before shutting off the comlink. They sound friendly, Tree said. Lannery ignored him. She stroked a pad on the joystick, and the weapons system fired up, casting a gleaming blue grid across the cockpit window. The two sentry ships were outlined in red, and a series of readings down the left-hand side showed the Peacemaker's readiness. Three lines turned quickly from white to green. Targeting, plasma missile, laser cannon. All online. Really? Tree asked. I'm not here to start a war, Lannery said. And you heard them. They're expecting me. Dale must have warned them, maybe lied about why I'm here. If Greenwood Station gets to know I'm here, war's what it might be. She relaxed into her seat and felt the force flowing through her, nerve ends tingling, senses sharpened. She tweaked the joystick to the left and stroked the trigger, and one of the ships exploded in a haze of fire and smoke. The second sentry took evasive action, swinging up and to the right in an attempt to drop back behind the peacemaker. But fast though they were, these small atmospheric craft were not designed for such complex maneuverability. Lannery followed, and as the ship reached the apex of its arc and slowed with the increased effort, she fired the laser cannons. The sentry's right wing exploded, and the craft started a long spin to the ground. Lannery drifted around and finished it off. No need to let the pilot suffer any longer than was necessary. She breathed deeply and thought briefly of the people she had killed. Their lovers and friends. Their families and stories. Jedi were taught to empathize with anyone they were forced to injure or kill, but Lannery never attributed these thoughts to the Force. They were all about being human. Great shooting, Tree said. He clapped his hands together once, Leku meeting above his head in a celebratory embrace. I just killed two people, Lannery said. But you had to! Doesn't make it any nicer. We'll be landing soon. Part of Greenwood Station's northern sector was bombed during the war. We'll get in through there. You mean we're landing outside the dome? Do you think they'll welcome a peacemaker into their landing base? Tree fell silent as Lannery flew them toward the distant dome. The ship settled, ticking and creaking as its engines wound down and its hull began to cool. Lannery usually liked this part of a long flight, imagining that the peacemaker was sighing with satisfaction at a job well done and slumping, ready to recharge its muscles. But this was nowhere near the end of her journey. She'd changed her clothes, donning a long, flowing robe that hid her sword but made her feel like a Daibendu monk. Ready? she asked. Honestly? Trisana said. After everything I've said, I still think I'd rather stay on board than go out there. Come on, Tree. 
You said my ship stinks. She grinned and keyed the code for the ship's hatch. A hiss, a groan, and the hatch swung down into a ramp, a breeze swirling around them as atmospheres equalized. Even behind the air mask she wore, Lannery swore she could smell the rancid atmosphere of this place. And if she hadn't been able to smell how toxic it was, it was easy enough to see. They exited the ship into a drifting yellowish haze. Tree followed her down the ramp, the spare mask she'd found for him clinging to his face in all the wrong places. It was made for a human, not a Twi'lek, but it would have to do. She didn't plan on their being outside for any longer than was necessary. They'd landed in a dip in the ground, and Lannery had skillfully drifted the ship in against an overhanging spur of rock. It rested in shadow, but anyone looking even casually would be able to find it easily. She wished she had time to camouflage it somehow, dust, or even some of the ragged creeping plants that she now saw grew here and there. But time was not on her side. She was very aware of the march of time, and that each movement moved Dale closer to carrying out his insane plan. She signaled the ship to seal up behind them, and paused to watch the ramp fold in and shut tightly. She caught a glimpse of Ironholgs just as the hatch closed. The droid would protect the ship with everything it had, but she was still worried. This might well have been the most hostile environment she had ever landed in. Greenwood Station was a smooth curve in the distance, just visible through the haze. She confirmed with Tree that this was indeed dawn on Knox, Tythos a blur just above the horizon past the dome. The atmosphere was so heavy with toxic pollutants, pumped out over millennia of mining and manufacturing, that Knox was denying the star itself. Lannery probed outward, sensing for trouble. There were life forms close by, but not many, and they were not sentients. She felt nothing dangerous, although she would never lower her guard. Her senses and caution were heightened now, and would remain so every moment she was here. This is nice, Tree said, voice muffled by his mask. Keep quiet, Lannery said. These masks don't carry much air and you'll waste it. They walked across the desolate landscape toward the dome. By all accounts, Nox had once been a verdant world, and although much warmer than Tython, it had supported vast forests of giant trees with huge leaves to bleed heat to the sky, beneath which complex ecosystems existed. It was rumored that one large island on Nox had been home to more species of birds and mammals than the whole of Tython. But settlers had quickly made use of its rich metal deposits and endless wood supplies to build giant smelting plants, extracting 90% of the metals used across the system. Over the space of a thousand years, most of the forests had vanished into ash, and with them the creatures they had supported. It had been a merciless despoilation of the planet, but at the time, the system had been a new, mysterious frontier, and those brought there by the Tho-Yor were desperate to make a home for themselves. The Jedi were finding their own path on Tython, and Nox's settlers had let need and greed guide their hands. It was desperately sad, but Nox was now beyond saving. Anything left was clinging to life. Mutation had increased, and there was little plant or animal life left on Nox that would have been recognizable by someone from 7,000 years before. Trees were gone, and the only plant life remaining was a low-growing, creeping scrub, thin leaves gasping carbon dioxide from the tortured air, roots growing deep in their search for nutrients. Small lizards scurried here and there. Lannery saw snake trails in the dusty soil, though she never spied a serpent. She guessed they kept themselves out of sight, perhaps living most of their lives below ground where the air could not kill them. The rains could not melt. By the time they were halfway to Greenwood Station, her skin was already starting to itch and burn where it was exposed to the atmosphere. As they drew closer and the settlement emerged from the haze, the damage to the dome's structure became apparent. 
It was as if a giant foot had stamped on the smooth dome, crushing the regular curve, reducing its surface area by a tenth, and cauterizing the damage with an uneven blackness. Closer still, and Lannery could see that this blackness was a layer of twisted metal and melted panels, the damaged structure propped by giant buttresses of gray rock and thick, roughly formed stanchions. The repair work seemed slapdash and haphazard, but Greenwood Station's business was tech, not construction, and its specialization was war. She held up a hand and paused by a lake of sickly yellow water. Greenwood Station took up half of their view, and this close, Lannery was wary of guards or security droids. We love bringing you more Star Wars, and it is because of our partners that we can do this week after week. So we invite you to be one of those partners. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep this going. Your support will give us the ability to create future episodes, as well as provide you with the best sounding show on your playlist. And to express our appreciation, we will give you a shout out on our mid-series show that we do in the middle of every book. You will also be automatically entered in all future giveaways. All you have to do is go to the show notes and click that listener support link. Now let's get back to the show. I want to go home, Tree said, voice muffled. We'll be inside soon, Lannery said. It's huge. She knew how large the domes were, of course. She'd seen the remains of those bombed by the Jedi and had viewed many hollows during her time at Padawan Kesh. But being this close to Greenwood Station brought its true size home to her. The brief research she carried out on her way here meant nothing to seeing it herself. Knowing that it was a space enclosed by one huge dome had perhaps given it limitations in her mind's eye. But the truth was, this was a city. More than eight kilometers across, the dome structure rose sharply from the ground and then curved gently toward the pinnacle, a place out of sight that was supported by a giant tower. This interior tower housed the city's ruling council, business owners, and other elite. Spread out from its base for more than three kilometers in every direction were the factories, transport roads and canals, habitation blocks, and leisure parks of this massive manufacturing city. Countless chimneys pierced the dome and rose higher, all of them spewing smoke and steam that billowed southward. The thought of being inside that is no comfort, Tree said. So, do we just knock at one of the gates? No, we sneak in. Through the scar, Tree said. How do you know they call it that? Tree shrugged. I thought it was common knowledge. More and more suspicious of Trisana, Lannery led the way toward the smashed span of dome. Though the bombing had been almost 12 years before, the rubble and remains were still scattered over a wide area. The dome's survivors had repaired the breach and sealed the damaged area, but no one had seen any need to clear the ruins. It seemed that anything outside the boundary of Greenwood Station was irrelevant. There were defensive positions across the dome's curved surface. Lannery could see pulse cannons and plasma mortars nestled in indentations in the structure, but she did not believe the positions were manned. She had heard of skirmishes between manufacturing domes, sometimes concerning resources or business, other times over causes unknown. But Greenwood Station was now so isolated by the ruins around it that it usually worked in peace. We'll climb up there, she said, indicating a path that rose through the debris. Hopefully, there'll be airlocks through the structure. Good, Tree said. Let's move. My skin's on fire and my leku are itching. They climbed an uneven mountain of debris, shattered rock, twisted remnants of structural material, and some opaque sections of the dome's shell that had been blasted and half-melted. The transparent material was almost as thick as Lannery was tall, and the shattered fragments were sometimes 30 meters across. Soon, they were inside the perimeter of the ruined section of dome. 
the going got tougher, as the ruin became more confused, with fallen buildings mixed with melted rock and jagged sculptures of distorted material. Pools had formed here and there, some of them covered with such thick layers of ash and dust that they resembled solid ground. Lannery had to pull Tree out of one pool, and he started shivering, soaked to the waist in rancid water. There, Lannery said at last, pointing to a cliff of fused dome and metal. What? Airlock. She force-probed, sensed no one. I don't think it's guarded. Come on. The airlock only became obvious when they were ten steps away. Lannery lifted her hand and tried to gesture the door aside. She grimaced and concentrated harder, and the door finally obeyed with a tortured whine. It can't have been used very much. She was aware of Tree watching her with a mixture of fascination and fear of her talents, but she did not acknowledge his attention. Air whooshed past them, and they entered, Lannery closing the door behind them. Pressures equalized. Several small lights came on, and the air cleared, and then a fine mist sprayed all over them. Decontamination complete, Lannery waved open the inner door. She readied herself for confrontation. If there were guards beyond the door, the questions would come thick and fast, and she would dip into the guards' minds, confusing them for long enough to put them out of action. She had no wish to kill anyone else unless she had to. But she would not hesitate if it meant getting one step closer to Dale. And stopping him, of course. That was her mission. Sometimes she had to remind herself that this was not simply a search for her long-lost brother. But there were no guards beyond the door, and no indication that this entrance was even monitored. A dilapidated corridor with flickering lights led away from the airlock, and they followed until they reached another door. They removed their masks, and Lannery hid them as well as she could above a loose ceiling panel. This must have all been built after the bombing, Tree said. I heard that Greenwood Station's council sanctioned the murder of a Jedi for every hundred city inhabitants killed in the attack. Lannery was aware of the series of assassinations that went on for two or three years after the Despot War. Rangers were lured into traps and killed. Diplomatic missions attacked. And even on Tython, there had been deaths. They lost about 2,000 here, Tree continued. You're knowing more and more about this pit, Lannery said. Makes me wonder whether you have business interests here I should take notice of. No interests. But you've done business here. Only by necessity. She rounded on him. Then do me a favor, Twilik. Let me conduct my business with no more talk of the past. Tree smiled in apology and inclined his head. Come on, she said. We're wasting time. They worked their way through a series of roughly built corridors and halls, all deserted and stinking of disuse. Lannery remained alert and was more aware than ever of the comforting weight of the sword beneath her robe. The air became heavier. The taint of burning grew and a hint of hot metal and the sweeter smell of something perfumed the air, as if added to distract from the other smells. As they crossed one large, featureless room, Lannery began to hear the sounds of a city. Beyond the room, a short walk to a doorway. And then they were out of the repaired zone, and standing on the rise of a hill at the inner edge of the dome, looking out across the vast, filthy, yet wondrous vista of Greenwood Station. "'Whoa!' Tree breathed beside her. And in that one word, Lannery was certain he had never actually been here. She almost said the same. A couple of kilometers distant was the massive central tower upon which the graceful, curved structural ribs of the dome rested. Its dark facade glinted with countless lights that Lannery assumed were windows, and larger openings might have been launch bays for the small airships that drifted back and forth through the confined space. Beyond that, just visible in the hazy distance, she could make out the far wall almost eight kilometers away. 
Buildings crowded the ground all across the dome. Roads trailed here and there, and in a few places, wide-open areas that might once have been parks seemed now to act as refuse dumps, with broken machinery or useless spare parts piled in reckless abandon. Fires burned on these dumps, and smoke from the conflagrations was being sucked up by mobile air cleansers, floating machines that vented to the outside via long, flexible pipes. Elsewhere, more solid chimneys rose and pierced the dome. There were hundreds of chimneys, and all were illuminated with bright neon strips. There seemed to be no relevance to the color of light used. Greens, blues, reds, yellows, harsh whites. The whole aerial part of the dome was lit garishly, and perhaps beautifully. The sight shocked Lannery, and for a moment she felt a lifting of her heart. But the true purpose of this place became obvious when she examined the buildings, roads, and storage structures more closely. She drew a small, powerful telescope from the discreet utility belt she wore beneath her robe and held it to her right eye. At the foot of the slope they stood on was an open area used to park military vehicles. They looked newly made. Some were large and cumbersome, bearing heavy guns and massive spiked wheels. Others were sleek and small, designed for infiltration rather than full-on attack. A few bore bulbous shells on their backs, inside which would be balloons ready for rapid inflation to lift the craft out of harm's way. Many ran on wheels, others on segmented tracks, and some were equipped with repulsor units that would enable them to glide and float just above the ground. Farther away, the factories began. Busy place, Tree said. His voice was high and loaded with shock. Where's the demand? I mean, for all this? It's like they're readying for war. There's always demand, Lannery said. Some of Shikakwa's crime barons can never have enough hardware. Calamar has its needs. And there are places on Skogora that even the Jedi don't know much about. Someone's always readying for war. Factories churned and roared, rumbled and throbbed. A gray haze hung in the air. Even though countless chimneys vented the steam and poisonous gases caused by this endless heavy manufacturing to the toxic outside atmosphere. Trains trundled on tracks along the center of wide thoroughfares. High wagons packed with raw materials or finished hardware. Three kilometers from where they stood, one train passed into a tunnel that must lead outside. It seemed that, though cut off by the result of the war, Greenwood Station was still very much involved in import and export. Maintenance drones buzzed through the air, and Lannery noticed that there was a huge amount of construction work going on. Some buildings were being extended or repaired, while others were being torn down, materials salvaged and set aside for new buildings. The noise from this work was a constant background rumble, and even from here, she could see at least five locations where major construction was underway. But impressive though the site was, her mind was already working on the problem at hand. Greenwood Station was almost 40 square kilometers of industrial buildings, living quarters, storage warehouses, spaceports, and other built-up areas. Whether or not Dale and his stargazers were already here, the task of finding them seemed immense. Ringwood petals, Tree said. He breathed in deeply. What? Can't you smell it on the air? Beneath everything else, the scent of ringwood petals. They must pump it into the air to overcome the stench. It's a flowering shrub from Calamar. Beautiful. You like flowers, Lannery said, voice flat. Doesn't everyone? Tree was becoming more of an enigma to her, not less. She had the sudden urge to ask about his history, his family and ties, get his true story out of him. You know people here, she said. You've done business here, so you know people. Like I told you, I've never been myself. That's not a denial. Tree looked uncomfortable. His leku waved and touched until he remembered that she could read them, and he brought them under control. 
but his red face seemed to shine redder than ever, and she saw shame rather than anger. What? she asked. The people I dealt with here? They're not nice. I wouldn't expect them to be. Tree looked away and nodded absently, as if conversing with himself. He frowned. Then he looked back to Lannery and seemed to have made a decision. Don't judge me, he said. She raised an eyebrow in surprise. He didn't seem like someone who cared what people thought about him. I mean it, he said. I'll take you to someone if I can find him, but he's unsavory. Compared to you? Lannery asked, immediately wishing she hadn't. Tree had done nothing in her eyes to deserve that. Compared to him, I'm a space angel. He's a scumhead. And whether he helps or not, please don't judge me by his company. I won't, Lannery said. But why do you think I need your help? Why else did you bring me along? Tree's confident smile returned, and Lannery was surprised by how pleased she was to see it. So as Lannery and Tree come into Nox's atmosphere, they are greeted by a couple of fighter ships, probably from one of the domes. Lannery fires and destroys them to hide their arrival. Then she gives thought to their memory. This is something that differs from the Jedi then and the Jedi of our time. The Jedi of our time only fight to defend themselves or whoever they're protecting. But these Jedi live by a different set of rules. They will kill anyone to finish their mission. Just something I wanted to point out. So Nox is not the best planet to visit. It's all messed up. Lanry and Tree must land outside of the planet's dome because they, you know, they want to hide their arrival. They don't want it to be detected. And then they got to walk to the dome from wherever they landed. Now this is some rough terrain. And I'm talking about rough. You got pollution that's causing them to itch and burn. And, they, you know, they got to wear masks so they can breathe and all this kind of stuff because the atmosphere is so messed up. But it sounds like it was once a very beautiful place. Now it's just mostly dead and jacked up. As they get closer to the dome, though, they realize how large these domes really are. It sounds like they are huge. But Lannery starts to question if Tree has ever been there by some of the things that he says. You know, she's like, wait, have you had dealings here before? Because, you know, you just sound like you've been here, even though you told me that you haven't. But as they get to the dome and they break into an airlock, Tree is in awe of Lannery as she uses the force to open the airlock door. Tree states that the ruling class of Nox had issued a death of one Jedi for every thousand people that were killed through the war that was fought between Nox and the Jedi. Lannery starts to get upset with Tree for talking about this and how he keeps bringing it up, you know, and how many Jedi died because of this place. When they are finally in the city, they hear the city that it lives underneath the giant dome. There's echoes, there's all kind of machinery going on, and they're kind of, uh, you know, like, wow, you know, there's a lot going on in here. But we won't find out anymore for a couple of weeks, and this is why. Because next week we'll be at the halfway through this book. We'll be at the halfway point. And that means the mid-roll episode has to come. And I will do a giveaway on this episode. And all you have to do to enter that giveaway is email me and let me know what you think of the show. That's it. That's all you have to do. The link to the email will be in the show notes. I will also give everyone that has partnered with us to keep this podcast going a shout out. And anybody that had partnered with us, went through the listener support link, will automatically be entered into the giveaway. And all the future giveaways that I do. It's my way of showing my appreciation. I will also be giving my recommendation to some fan films and some books that you might like to read. And some other stuff that, you know, anything that has Star Wars related that I come across. So make sure you turn into that show. It's going to be important. So don't miss out. 
Thank you for listening to Sway. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can find us and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shit and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel, sound designed by Theodore Thompson, researched by Tammy Turner. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.